0: Welcome to Meet Your Funeral Celebrant. My name is Tony Piper and in each episode of this podcast I'll be talking with a funeral celebrant. As well as getting to know them and exploring their approach to funerals, each guest will also share some useful tips. I hope this helps you find the right celebrant for you so you can create a good send-off. So let's begin. This episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Judy Mansfield. Judy is based in Long Itchington in Warwickshire in the UK and has been a funeral celebrant since 2012. By way of fun facts, Judy is a lifelong Rod Stewart fan and hasn't missed a tour since she was 15 years old. When she's not being a funeral celebrant, you can often hear her on BBC Radio Coventry in Warwickshire's Thought for the Day on a Sunday morning and Puritans Radio in Banbury. Hi Judy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here.
1: Hello, Tony. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Why don't you fill in some of the gaps and tell us a little bit more about you?
1: Okay. Um, I live in, as you said, in Warwickshire with my husband, Russ, and our two Spaniels that keep us very busy. Um, we moved to this area. I'd lived in, um, in France for just over a decade with, with my husband. and We came back to the UK uh, to look after our elderly parents. And we had at that time um, three parents between us. We're now down to one, so uh, so it was the right time to come back to uh, to to be near near to them. So Warwickshire was chosen because it was equidistant between um, my husband's parents and mine.
0: And at that point, did you know you, you were going to become a funeral celebrant?
1: No, not at all. I didn't even know what a celebrant was. I'd never heard the never heard the term before. Um, i had been working out in out in France and so i needed to find something to to do that i could wrap around um looking after parents and and their needs right. and so self employment was clearly the way to go but i didn't really have any idea um of what it was i wanted to do and and really what skills i could i could bring to, to to self-employment so um so it was purely by chance that um that somebody said to me oh you'd make a good celebrant i was speaking at some um business event and uh, and i thought whatever's a celebrant and i nodded politely and went home and looked it up and i thought yep that's there it is there's my career
0: and did you did you start with funerals or weddings
1: no, I, I went in with weddings mm. and uh, wedding ceremonies and, beca- and and I actually resisted the idea of funerals because mm. I'm the sort who weeps at adverts, you know, okay. uh, so uh, tears are never, never far away. And I thought, no, I'll be way too emotional mm. to, to do justice to, to the role. But I was persuaded to do the training and to bank it, you know, anyway. Mm. And I'm so glad I did because... Although I adore the weddings I do, funeral celebrancy actually gives me more satisfaction, and uh, and it's the part of the part of my my job that I find the most rewarding.
0: What's important to you about being a funeral celebrant?
1: Um, I think making a difference hmm. is is what's important. Um, that every family received or every, every family receives the the funeral that they want in order to say goodbye to their loved ones um, and that they remember the funeral for the right reasons mm. so not that they remember the celebrant i think um i'm the i'm the catalyst that that makes it happen um, but they should they should remember how they felt at the funeral but not necessarily in time i should fade out of their memory. Mm-hmm.
0: And what do you love most about the job?
1: Oh, all of it. I love all of it. I love the people that I meet. Um, I love the stories that I get to tell, uh, because that I think is one of the one of the most important roles that we have is as a storyteller mm. and to to create that story to be told. And when else, indeed, do we have the chance to have our story told? Yep. and so, and that's something I've learned is that everyone has their story. And it's our role to bring that story out, whether it's for someone else to tell, or or whether it's for the celebrant to do it on on the family's behalf. Mm-hmm. I love putting that putting that together and researching it. So I I, I really love that. And at a, a typical funeral, um, which for me is a cremation service, when you're standing in the flower court after the service and you're waiting for the family to come out. And I always think, oh, I hope it was right for them. And they come out, and of course, they're very upset, you know, that when they immediately leave the leave the chapel. And I just stand quietly and I listen and I watch. And gradually the noise level increases. And mm. um, the, the, the they're very quiet at first, but then gradually they'll start talking and they'll start chatting. And then someone will laugh and then there's more laughter. And and the noise level increases still further, and I think that's it. That's good. That's relief that they've that, that 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 they've got through it, and and it's all gone well. And for me, that's that's affirmation.
0: And of course, what happens is that you know you tell just a fraction of the stories that mm. are all the stories that everybody has, and to encourage them to begin to share them is is a lovely thing as an outcome for a funeral.
1: It, it absolutely is, and that's the that's usually in my closing address. That's usually the thought that I leave them with. Mm. That I um, it was a a Roman emperor. I think it was Cicero who said that the lives of the dead are placed for safekeeping in the memories of the living.
0: Oh, that's beautiful,
1: isn't it? Ooh. And that and Single. that while we it, it is, and that mm. while we continue to speak someone's name. Mm. Then their memory lives on, yes. and they'll never truly be gone from us. And so it's important to share those stories and to speak to speak someone's name. And there's a generation, you know, that wartime generation, um, who are who are leaving us now. People born in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, and if their story isn't told, if we don't capture those memories, then they're gone. Mm. You know, they're com- they've completely disappeared. So that's another another aspect you know to to continue that that heritage of 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 memory
0: so important
1: Mm. yes i think it i think it is i think it is yeah
0: what's your most useful skill then when working with families
1: um I've got, a, I suppose, a range of skills. I, I worked in my main career was in Whitehall and, uh, and I learned such a lot from working with government ministers. Mm-hmm. I used to have to write um, answers to parliamentary questions and uh, parliamentary inquiries on behalf of various government ministers in, in the Ministry of Defence. Mm-hmm. And I learned there the skill of working to very, very tight deadlines but not to sacrifice accuracy. Right. Um, and, and working very accurately. And to and what I've added to that is the skill of listening. And listening to what is not said mm. as much as to what is said. Because very often when you're when you're with a family and prompting them to talk to you, sometimes they're paralysed by grief and they don't know what to say. And you get very little. And trying to create. Um, a eulogy out of very little is something that you you have to learn as a celebrant on on different occasions. But if you can prompt those memories to start flowing yeah. and listen to what they're saying, that's a, a definite skill. But sometimes you will be conscious that they're not saying something about a certain member of the family, or and then you discover by gentle prompting that. They're not talking about it because perhaps there's been an estrangement in the family. Perhaps you know one of the children doesn't didn't speak to his dad for empty years, and uh, or there'll be there'll have been a difficult divorce or something like that, or one part of the family isn't speaking to the other, and you have to listen for those little clues. Nonverbal mm. clues very often and reassure the family that to talk about that as well, not so that I can dish it all out in the eulogy, but so that I know where the sensitive areas are yeah. to avoid and how to how to word it so that um, so that it's not missing out a chunk of someone's life. But neither is it airing things that the family would rather weren't broadcast.
0: Yes. It's it's easy to want to present all of the, the really, really great bits, at the total exclusion of the not so great bits. But of course, you know, when we know somebody who's died, you know, we we think of them as an overall person, don't we?
1: Well, absolutely. It's it's not my aim to um, to, to write a hagiography. Yeah. Um, but to, to to write something that people will recognize yes um, my, my own father's um, eulogy uh, he passed away in 2000 but his his eulogy I didn't recognize my dad from that really it could have been could have been about anyone it was so anodyne yeah and so so I always aim to to really make it a reflection and I I I say to you know i to the, To the family, that to think about someone's life as a tapestry, mm-hmm. and that all the different memories from from all parts of their life, from their from their siblings, from their parents, from their children, from their workmates, all those different threads, uh, 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 different coloured threads, all add to the tapestry being brighter and more complete a picture.
0: Yes. Yes. So what do you think makes for a good funeral? You talked about how you know the funeral has been a good funeral when the, the noise level goes up after the weeping. But what what makes a good funeral?
1: I think a good funeral is one where the family feel that they have done right by the person who has died, mm-hmm. um, that that they feel a sense of of relief and of closure and of another step on the road to healing. Mm. Um, I think that, I think that makes a, a good funeral and that it's the person who's died is at the center of it. Mm. The, I always describe the eulogy as the heart of a funeral ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so that to me is, is the important part of it. That's not taken away from the committal because that's, That's the most emotive part of it, but it's also, you know, an incredibly important part to get right. But I think it's that it's in the time, the time that we're allocated, that it's the. That it's as complete as it can be. And yes, you know, people will talk about humour in in a funeral and we shouldn't shy away from from humour. But neither should humour. I, I worry sometimes that humour is used to avoid grief, mm. and I think that's I think that's wrong as well. To that that it it's a way of of acknowledging and respecting the death, and I think that has to happen as well as well as the laughter. So it's a it's a balance. I think it's um, a very delicate um, balance. Oh, it it absolutely is. It absolutely is because sometimes I I can remember one funeral um that I did a few years ago now, but the family were um they they were firmly in the grief avoidance mode. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to say the word death. I wasn't allowed to say the word dying. I wasn't allowed to um to to talk about how you know about his illness um that he'd had for two and a half years, Um, nothing at all. It was, it was all very sanitized Mm -hmm. and it was for them to be able to cope with the emotion of it. And I felt that they didn't get, they were adamant and I tried gently to persuade them through it, but no, they, 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 it was almost not like a funeral. And I don't know that they got from it what they wanted and I often think about that funeral. That was about three years ago now. I often wonder how they're coping now. Mm.
0: And you talked about the committal as being you know the other main part of the ceremony. And what kind of committal did they have?
1: They had the curtains uh, the curtains left open, yeah. and um, they didn't want to stand for the committal. They just wanted to stay in their seats, and there was to they had uh, music playing um, in the background as I spoke the words of committal mm. over it, but they just had um, very, very simple wording. Mm. So it was almost like it, it, it didn't have the the depth mm. I think that it, that it should have had but that was that was the family's choice. Yeah. And and you have to you have to respect that. You can you can discuss all the aspects of it. You can listen to what they want, but at the end of the day it still has to be their decision.
0: And to anybody planning a funeral, what would you say to them about this?
1: Um if they're planning and organizing a funeral, I would say give give thought to what a funeral is meant to achieve. And it's, it's often said, isn't it, that a funeral is to, to get the living where they need to be and the dead, where they need to go.
0: Thomas Lynch.
1: That's right. And so, um, and so keep, keep that in mind. And, uh, and I, you know, I I don't flinch from saying that to, Mm. to, to families um, that, and we get one chance. get it right so don't be rushed into it um don't feel that the the date that the funeral director offers you is the date that you have to go for don't feel um that you have to do what everyone else does that's a question i'm often asked well what should we do what's usual Mm. and i say well what's usual is what's right for you Mm. so if you if you want something different then tell me, explain to me how how you would like it to be, and I will help you to make it happen.
0: It's difficult, yes. isn't it? Because people have one experience maybe of, of quite some time ago and you know things have moved on and they don't know what they don't know.
1: That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I'll I'll give them all the options that are available to them. And sometimes it's options that the funeral director may not may not have, have put before them. Mm. And so, but then that's not their role, really. The the I I see my role as as helping them with the ceremony. Yeah. So, giving them the options and the information, even if they discount them, it means that they have had that choice.
0: Yeah. What's not so important for a good funeral? Is there something that people think that they ought to worry about, but actually they don't need to, or that they spend a lot of energy? Uh, on something that ultimately, you know, won't be, you know, as as helpful to whatever it is they need to do that they think it will be. It's a difficult question.
1: Mm, it is. I'm just, um, I'm just thinking that through. I suppose the the floral tributes people will spend an absolute fortune on floral tributes, and it always makes me. A little bit sad that they're in, they're sat in the flower court, and then after a couple of days, they're moved out of the way. and And I think, oh, they've spent so much money mm. on on these beautiful floral tributes, and and very often it's families who can least afford to do that. And so, it is heartening to see now, you know, that that very often you will just have family flowers and donations donations to charity mm. but still you know people will spend such a huge amount uh, o- on it um and i think that's not necessarily as important and i tell people not to worry about that that if they don't want to have fleets of of, of limos to take them to the um, to take them to the the venue not to worry about it to come in mm. their own car and that's absolutely fine um, that if they want to cut back on costs, that that's fine too. You know, not to not to feel they've got to put on a big show, mm. because what's important is the is the emotions mm. rather than the rather than the trappings.
0: Yes, it's ultimately about what is what they say and what they do.
1: Yes, and how they feel.
0: Yeah. Hmm. That's very helpful. I think it's something that certainly in my part of the world, I live in uh, East London, you know, we're quite good at doing big funerals and with horses and lots of flowers. Mm. And, you know, that was the and traditional that's, that's funeral. that's a
1: big, it is, mm. it's a big East End tradition, isn't it? Mm. It's the, uh, the, the, the horses with their plumes. And, that's right. And, uh, and And, of course, if that's right for them. Yeah. You know then that's absolutely right. it's It's really not to not to do things because you feel it ought to be done, yes, or because other people have done it, or what will people think if we don't?
0: Yes, exactly.
1: It's, yeah. I, I think that's the crux of it.
0: Yes. That's very useful. Thank you. There's so much around funerals that is about giving people permission. And this is one of those things about permission to not do those things which maybe they feel they ought to do.
1: Well, ab- absolutely. And um, so some funerals I've done have been completely different um, where people have opted for um, a direct cremation and uh, and then they will have um, a memorial service mm. in their own time elsewhere and And we can really we can really work on making it a beautiful, personalized service then, um because the time constraints are removed.
0: Yes, and you can have it anywhere.
1: absolutely. i I did a lovely one um in a garden in the family at the family home. And we all gathered in the garden, and people were just sat around on you know on the, on their garden chairs. And at the the timing, um we worked so that at the very moment, of committal, the, the 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 man who died was being cremated um, at a, at a crematorium um, in in a nearby town, and so I timed it so that at the moment of committal, um, at the at the crematorium, um, that we had, yeah, we had a, a silence, and um, a, at that time, while we all thought about the gentleman, um, but the rest of the ceremony was all wrapped around it, and, and we could move on to a celebration of his life. Yes, and so that was that. That was quite beautiful. I did another one in a pub. Um, the man had spent. Uh, they they said, well, he spent most of his adult life there, and so you know, could we have the the ceremony in the pub? And I said, of course you can. You know, if the pub are up for it, then let's do it. And we were given their back room, and that was that was lovely. And um, and he he'd had his funeral ceremony in in a church um, down south. And then, uh, and then we had the we had the memorial service for all his friends and family in in the Midlands um, a couple of weeks later, mm. and that worked really well. And I worked um, I worked hand in hand with the vicar who had done the funeral. We linked the two services, the church service mm. and the theme that had run through that, and uh, and I almost carried it on into the memorial service afterwards. Oh wow. And so that was so because there were people who had been at both. Yes. And I didn't want them to feel that they'd done one thing and now they were doing another because it was all part of um, of Jack's journey. Mm. So I, I, I wanted that to flow to flow from one to the other. And we, we we did it very well, I think.
0: Do you think we'll see more of these sort of small funeral, bigger memorial service slash celebration happening
1: Yes, I th- th- there certainly seems to be a, a trend to it. I'm, I'm doing more of them, and of course with natural burials as well. It's that that's very similar, you know, without the time constraints, yes. um, and and so yes, I think, I think I think that is happening more. People are taking ownership of their um, of, of their funeral of the funeral service now, which mm-hmm. previously they haven't done. They've been guided by uh, by what is available. Mm. And I said, "Well, you don't have to be guided by what's available. You can create something yourself. And it's happening right across um right across our life, key life moments, so from weddings to baby namings and and why not funerals? It's a natural a natural progression that that people want to make it their own.
0: Yes, yeah, so well, I'm thinking about weddings, you know, sometimes there'll be a a small sort of civil ceremony somewhere. And then a larger gathering somewhere else, often with a holiday involved or something like that. <laughs>
1: mm. Well, do you know it's it's amazing actually with you, with us talking about weddings how how similar the or the many similarities there are between a wedding and a funeral mm-hmm. because you have orders of service, you invite guests, um, people all gather together for one purpose that you're thinking about flowers you're thinking about music you're thinking about the food so that there are lots of lots of similarities and i think it all stems from as a human our need for ritual yes and so even if someone has something um, very unique and very bespoke it's still within that framework of ritual and i think we do we do need that
0: Yes, I think we do. It taps into something that's very deep and that we don't necessarily um, not necessarily consciously aware of the need, but we know when we're getting it mm. you know when you're part of something like that
1: that's right that's right. The framework I think is still is it, people like to know what's expected of them, mm. especially when they're when they're dealing with something. As as you alluded to, that you know doesn't happen in their lives very often. You know they don't have to arrange funerals very often. And as we're all living longer, sometimes you know it can people can be in their in their late fifties, sixties before they have to arrange a funeral for the first time.
0: Yes. What was your most unusual funeral?
1: Oh, um, I suppose unusual funerals there was a beautiful beautiful natural burial that i did down in somerset um, for a friend it was her sister who had uh, who had died and in fact it was the second of the three sisters who uh, who had died young in their mid 30s and uh, this was after illness um, but it was it was really beautiful they had a um a woolen shroud and um and the, the gathering at, at the natural burial ground was in um like a roundhouse and um and the family all wrote messages to to their daughter, their sister, um, their friend on ribbons mm. and tied them at, at a point in the um in the the, the ceremony we put together. They tied them, the, these loving messages to the um to the shroud and uh, And that was beautiful. There were only a dozen people there. They wanted it very private and very intimate. and um and so the shroud was on a trestle, and we all sat in a circle around it. Uh, we played her favorite music. The roundhouse was decorated with um with pictures of things that she'd loved. Um, there was incense burning. It was really. Really beautiful, and as we walked out to the to the the graveside to the lair, um, the family carried her, and mm. they took her as far as they possibly could in this world. And that really was mm. quite a special um, ceremony to be involved with. And uh, and I was merely there to help them to make it happen. They created it all themselves, and that was important for them to be able to do that. Mm.
0: That is a really good point. That you know, celebrants can be involved in a funeral in all sorts of ways. You know, they they don't have to do it all.
1: No, absolutely not. And in fact, that's one of the that's one of the pieces of advice that I would give to to any aspiring celebrant is that it's not about you. Hmm. And I think you know, it, it behoves us all to remember to remember that that it isn't about us. It's about the family. Mm. And it's about them and it's about what they want.
0: And certainly a family member feeling able to stand up and contribute in some way, whether it's speaking, whether it's carrying, whether it's placing something somewhere, um, is hugely valuable because when it's done, they know there's nothing more they could do.
1: I always acknowledge that in a ceremony, that that the family has put together the ceremony, the people who knew and loved the deceased best. And so the music choices and the flowers and the order of service um, have been given with great love and great Mm -hmm. thought. And then after a service, when I send out the script to the family, I always handwrite a card and with the with the script, when I post it to them. and And I will always acknowledge anyone who read um, at the service because that's a big thing to step up and to and to read. It's a very emotional thing to do. I always tell a family as well that um, that I'm their I'm their wingman. So I have a copy of whatever they're going to read, whatever they're going to say, Not so that I can change it in any way. But simply so that I've got a backup copy. It has been known for people to leave their reading in the car. And so it means I've got the spare one. And if on the day they find, do you know what, I can't do it. They just have to shake their head at me from the pew, from their seat. Mm-hmm. And I then introduce it to say, our next reading is, you know, is a eulogy from mm-hmm. John's son. And I have the privilege of reading it on his behalf. And in that way, nobody would ever know that his son had meant to read it and couldn't. Yes. So, and and it also means if somebody falters halfway through, I don't barge in immediately and push them to, I'll I'll do it. I I gauge it very carefully. Sometimes all they need is a sip of water and they can carry on or a touch on the arm and, and they're okay and they're ready to go again. But if I find they're really struggling, then I will stand by them and just ask them, "Would you like me to continue for you?" Mm. And they they will stand by me as I as I finish reading it for them. Mm. It, and again, that's a fine balance of knowing just when to step in and when to hold back and give them that space.
0: Yes. What was your most challenging funeral?
1: Oh, I've had a few challenging uh, challenging funerals. Um, I had one um, for a chap who hadn't lived a very good life. He hadn't made very good choices in his life. Um, uh, mostly it's you know it's true down to down to drug abuse. So he'd spent a lot of time in and out of prison. he'd mugged people, he'd um, he'd stolen from his parents, he'd been violent and uh, and each time, you know he would reform and then slip back. And so that had split the family in two. And so that was a very difficult one to write. And to write a eulogy from somebody who had done so many bad things was was quite a difficult one uh, to write. And to write and deliver something that wouldn't alienate people or start a fight yes. because people's emotions are running very high anyway. Or so gloss over have- the realities exactly Mm. exactly so that was that was quite a challenging one um Mm. baby funerals are always challenging always and um and as much a challenge for me to hold my own emotions in check Mm. because i think it would be so wrong for anyone to remember a funeral as the one where the celebrant was weeping from the lectern i think showing empathy is fine But it's not our grief. We have no moral right to their grief. And so that and and I use that as a little mantra sometimes um, if because you do get close to, to the family and you do feel that empathy with them. But I have that little mantra in my mind beforehand when I have those few moments in the vestry before I go out to lead the coffin into the chapel. And I repeat over and over. It's not my grief. And that gives me the strength to get through and lead that ceremony and to hold this, hold that space for the for the family and friends to grieve. So that that's always a always a challenge, uh, baby funerals. And of course, then you get the logistic challenges, like when the wrong music has been um, put on the system by the by the chapel, and out comes something that you weren't expecting, hmm. or when the service before yours runs 20 minutes late and it's eating into your time and there's a ceremony coming after you what do you do do you do you cut your service so that the next one starts on time and you've got all those split second decisions to make um when when something you know when something goes wrong or like when the curtains stick open um, at committal when you're expecting them to close all the way through mm. so that, that you get all those logistic challenges that you have to be uh, that you have to be ready for
0: yes um there's a lot that can go wrong on the day and
1: there there is and i think it's important just to mm. just to be ready yeah. to be ready for them and uh, uh and to have a around solution so for example in my scripts on the time and timing issue, um, I'm touching wood here, but I've never once um, in, in the, the funerals I've done, I've never once gone over my time. It's come pretty close a couple of times, but I've I've never never overrun. But I have in my script, um, I will use italics and I will use different fonts. So for things that, if for any reason it's overrunning, if you get someone who um speaks at the eulogy Mm. and goes off the cuff and is still speaking you know sort of long after they should have sat down you know timing wise um then i i know on my script that there are parts that i can cut without it detracting from the ceremony itself
0: that's a really good strategy yeah when you've got people needing to say what they need to say and the clock ticking and mechanical things and traffic and everything else. Yes. It's a, it's a wonder that any funeral actually happens on time.
1: Well, yes, it is. And I think that's, you know, that's down to the, down to the skill of, of the celebrant, isn't it? That we can, that that we can, we don't panic and we work around, um, we work around Mm. any, any difficulties like that.
0: Well, alas, time is running away with us. I could talk to you all day, Judy. Um, Is there anything else that you uh, would like to say, particularly thinking for anybody who might be listening to this who is currently organising a funeral, either they're planning for the future or maybe they're organising a funeral now. Is there anything else that might be useful for them to hear?
1: Well, I think planning for the future is, is a very interesting point to raise, Tony, because I will go out to see families and sometimes they have no idea where they want to go, they don't know if the um, if the person who's died wanted to be cremated or buried. They're wrestling with that. Would they want hymns? Or oh, I don't know. Should we have prayers? I'm not sure. Um, can we have the Lord's prayer? And my answer there is usually, if you want to use the Lord's prayer as a comfort blanket, mm. you absolutely can, and yeah. I don't think God would mind. And so, um, so I would say, write down mm. your funeral wishes. Even if it's something as simple as you would like to be cremated or buried or natural burial, um, whether you would like hymns, what music you would like, just jot them down. It's not going to make your death happen any quicker by talking about it. And then you can, once it's done, it's done. Put it in an envelope. Make sure it's somewhere that people know where it is. Um, put down your um, what you want to do about your social media oh, accounts and all yes. that sort of thing. That, that legacy. What
0: do we do with it?
1: Oh. Uh, ex- well, hmm. exactly. But jot all that down. Put your passwords in there as well, if you want people to access it. You know, once once you've died, and then just just write it down and encourage people in your family to do it because I'll sometimes I'll sometimes ask people. Um, have you written your, oh, yes, i got my mum to do hers, you know, because she's getting on. And I said, well, there's no guarantee that your mum is going to die before you. Have you done yours? And I go, oh, well, no. And so I'll get yours done as well. You know, encourage everyone to write them all down. And uh, and and then it's, it's done. And it's so much of a relief yes. for the people who are left that at least they have this sense of thinking they're doing the right thing. It just relieves a li- little bit of stress. And as a final thought, if anyone, I'm always happy to talk to anyone, um, if they would like any advice or guidance, whether or not I'm doing their funeral, um, they can always contact me through, um, through my website or through my Facebook page. And I'm more than happy to chat ideas through or to send ideas of readings or poetry. That's
0: very kind of you, Judy. We'll make sure that your website is listed in the um, notes for the podcast. Given the number of funerals that you lead every year, Judy, I just wonder, are two funerals ever the same?
1: No, they, no, they aren't. Um, every funeral I lead is is different. Um, sometimes um, they follow a, a similar format, and that harks back to what we said earlier about ritual. But no two people are ever the same, and so no ceremony is the same. And indeed, after after each funeral I lead... I I look at what I've learned from from that ceremony. And it might be that I've come across a new piece of music. It may be that I've been introduced to a a new poem, thanks to the family, or a different way of of, uh, using the committal wording. Um, But I learn something from every ceremony I do. And I think that's quite important, given that we work in quite an insular way. Um, it's it's important to try and keep learning and keep reflecting and keep open to different ways of doing things so that we as celebrants don't get set in our way
0: yes very important the day when you uh, think oh here's just another funeral is probably the day to think about doing something else i could talk to you all day Judy. it's been lovely thank you so much for your time
1: Thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure uh, having a conversation with you, Tony. (laughs) You're
0: very welcome. Good luck with all you do. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.